Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So today's guest is Pedro Domingos. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Washington in Seattle. And the sort of way that I came to appreciate him and his work is through this book that he wrote in 2015 called The Master Algorithm. And the basic idea behind it is, you know, for a number of reasons, it's very sort of tantalizing to think about the prospect of one AI algorithm to rule them all. You know, this idea that, um, you know, instead of coming up with many different solutions to many different problems and the way machine learning and AI tackles things, that maybe there is one highly generalizable way of attacking problems generally. And maybe this is what the brain does. Maybe this is how human intelligence works. Maybe this is the most efficient way to implement intelligence. And he, you know, with this book was one of the flagship people to take this this hypothesis seriously and, and to wrap some useful words around the idea. And uh, so, you know, he's, he's been a big contributor to the AI literature and, um, you know, on, on several different fronts. And so it was fun to hear about you know, the way he's approached that and also the context of his growing up in Portugal. He grew up during a, you know, revolution, a politically fraught time in his country's history, uh, spent some time in London and now, of course, in the United States. And so it's just interesting to hear, you know, something that is ultimately a very abstract pursuit in artificial intelligence, how that is framed by experience in the most concrete uh, you know, sort of events of all, which is which is war and hardship, and uh, you know these 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 things that have real consequences in everyday life. And so, yeah, it was fun to to get to know him a little bit better, and uh, I, I really enjoyed having this conversation. So, without any further ado, here is Pedro Domingos. A place that I usually like to start off with is. Um, where did you grow up? What did your childhood sort of look like? Um, and uh, yeah, what did what did what what did all that look like for you? I grew up in Lisbon, in Portugal, um, except for a couple of years that uh, I spent in London uh, as a teenager. Uh, my childhood was interesting in that uh, when I was eight, there was a revolution in Portugal. So Portugal was under a fascist dictatorship for almost 50 years, mm. <laughs> longer than almost anywhere, lucky we. Yeah. Uh, but that was overthrown in 1974. And then there was this period of two years of pure revolution, which I, as an eight-year-old kid, found extremely entertaining. <laughs> yeah. You know, the tanks and the demonstrations and the whole very pointed debate on which was the best past to socialism and whatnot. Uh, you know, I was reading these books on Marxist theory on the at the age of nine and things like that. Uh, and then, and then, luckily, thank God, things settled down after a whole series of coups and counter coups. But it was a very—I mean, prior to that, so I, I went to um, a primary school at an English school in Lisbon, and pre-primary, uh, kindergarten. So I spent my first years of schooling in something called Queen Elizabeth School, uh, you know, where even though this was in Portugal, the, the headmaster and the staff were largely English, and they just taught us to be proper English people. 
which <laughs> is, uh, you know, uh, ironic, but but that's what happened. And then there was this revolution. And then there was like, you know, part of my schooling was through this period of chaos. So, I mean, school itself was chaos, like classes wouldn't happen or there would be some revolutionary this thing or, or another. You'd have to do it on uh, Zoom half the time. Well, no, that's a whole <laughs> different level. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't reach that. But there was also it was there was also a period of ferment as you have at these revolutionary times where people feel like anything is possible. We're going to redesign society. We know we can do everything now. And of course, most of that turned out to be completely naive and mistaken. But it was it was fun while it lasted, is one way to put it. And then I went to uh, so so I spent you know the first six years of my school in a private school. Then I spent some time in, in a you know public school, and then uh, you know I spent two years uh, in London, at the London Oratory School, um, which is um, you know a, a very good actually Catholic school. Um, my dad was a professor, and he was uh, uh, first spending a sabbatical, and then an invited professor at, at Imperial College, and he brought the rest of us with him, and that was a completely different experience. <laughs> dramatically different you know everybody in uniform with the tie and the and the suit and very strict discipline and um uh, just a completely different world uh, and i think uh it, in a way it's lucky for me that i got to experience a series of different worlds in, in succession then when i went back to portugal we have this thing that seems very strange where you actually had to pick a major in your ninth year of schooling, and then and then and then your last few years, you actually went somewhere that was actually geared to your area. And I picked electrical engineering, so instead of you know attending the nice you know middle class schools that of the area I grew up in, I actually went to you know this place that where I learned like things like electronics in a very hands on way, which was great because then when I went to college, right, you know I went to Portugal's equivalent of MIT. And I got this very strong education, very mathematical, very abstract, but I also had this, you know, prior experience of actually soldering, you know, things, you know, to build a circuit and 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 whatnot. So um yeah, uh I I had a very hard maybe the most salient part of all this is that I had a very hard time deciding what I wanted to major in. Very hard. But because I liked everything. Was that there so? Was, was that um, like you were saying that ninth grade decision, or was that later yeah. on in 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 college? That was that was mainly. No, I mean there were decisions at various stages, but unfortunately, the main one was taken at that stage, which is far too early for most people. Hmm. But I went about it very systematically. I actually read books and talked to people in just about every area that I thought I might be interested in. It you sounds know, like that's that's uh, where you missed your opportunity to become one of the world's foremost Marxist scholars. So that 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 was how we lost uh, Pedro on on that front. Unfortunately, it sounds like. I know it would have been so much better, right? It's <laughs> both. So I just like my timing was off. Oh man, yeah, that's why we shouldn't have forced you too early to uh, to decide on your major. Otherwise, we could have we we really missed out on some some Marxist insights there. Uh, but yeah, so what was it about? What was there anything that made that final decision for electrical engineering? Was it the hands-on nature of it? What was what was the what drew you to it? You think ultimately? Actually, it was something very simple. Is that I realized, and and in retrospect, I realized that it was this was very much the right call. 
you know, my dad was a professor and he had friends who were like architects, managers, including some of the best ones in the country. And some of them actively discouraged me from going into their field. And, and in particular, what several of them said, including the managers, was um, if you study hard science or engineering, right? And I, you know, like a lot of people, I liked math and physics, not particularly engineering at that point. But they said, if you study that in college, after that, you can still do whatever you want. If you go to college and study humanities or law or blah, blah, then you, then, then, or management, then that's it. You can't go from management to engineering. You can go from engineering to management. So I picked engineering as a way to keep my options open. <laughs> it wasn't because necessarily engineering was the thing that I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So as a young man, as an adolescent, uh, close to 18 in Portugal, what was, how did you think about leaving versus staying? Was it obvious to you that you wanted to, to go somewhere else to, um, uh, go to London? Uh, what, what was, what was that thought process like? Well, actually, to be clear, I did my undergrad in Portugal. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And then, um, and by the way, when I started my undergrad, there was no computer science major. Mm. But 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 halfway through that, the computer science uh, the computer science specialization was introduced as a specialization of the double E degree, and at that point, I knew that computer science was the thing, right? Like I had you know, as soon as I saw computer science in front of me, I was like, great, this is exactly what I want because I could see the potential for impact and also the room for creativity, right? The thing the thing about computer science is that you can create whatever the heck you want. Your imagination is the limit. And that, that really resonated with me. I also and hear then, you only need one algorithm to do it, too. So no, that We're getting there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've been making progress towards that. Yeah. Um, exactly. okay, so what was, it, but what was the moment where you first got into AI specifically? So computer science gives you this big palette shoes for to, uh, to, sort of, to sort of work with. What was the thing that, that, that caught your attention in, in, in AI specifically? Yeah, so I did not study AI in my undergrad because mm. that subject was not available. But but one day in my junior year, I just saw this book in a bookstore that had the title Artificial Intelligence. And, you know, I was in a hurry and I kept going. Uh, but, but that title stuck in my mind, like, what could a book called Artificial Intelligence possibly be about? It just seemed like an oxymoron, right? Uh, and then, like, I went back, I don't know, a couple of weeks later, and I actually picked up the book and read it and decided to buy it. Um, and I was just fascinated by what I found there. So without that book, which was, you know, the book Artificial Intelligence by Elaine Rich, uh, it came out in 1983, I think I picked it up a few years after that. Without that book, I might not have gone into AI. Mm, yeah. But the thing that happened when I when I read that book was, it was actually two different things. One was... A, I mean, AI was, and I would argue still is, in a shockingly primitive state, right? It was like half of the stuff in that book was laughable, particularly the part about machine learning, which, again, to me, immediately as soon as I saw that, it was like machine learning is the key that turns this whole system. If you can do machine learning, the rest follows. And the state of machine learning was just pathetically bad, hmm. right? On the one hand. But on the other hand, the potential of that field was just staggering, right? And that, you know, I, I 
in quick succession, eventually decided to do the PhD in machine learning because I was convinced that one day this thing was going to take over the world. And at the time, people were like, whatever. <laughs> it's like, it was like this small, obscure field. But now, now, now I think we're seeing that. So I saw how, and the thing is this, is that like, you want to go into a field that is in a primitive state, right? Going into physics or even biology is very hard, right? Because, you know, people have been at it for a long time and it's very hard to really make progress. In AI, it wasn't hard to make progress at all. Still isn't. It's just like, just the problem is, is, is the embarrassment of riches. At the same time that I read this book, coincidentally, um, I also... In the same bookstore, I picked up a, a psychology textbook. And naturally, that psychology textbook, I mean, I like to just like read textbooks for fun, you know. <laughs> um, and, 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 that, and the thing was that having read the two at around the same time, I was just struck. First of all, I saw that psychology was an incredibly rich field, right, with many things that like deeply fascinated me. And, 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 and I saw the contrast between what humans do. We don't understand it still, but that there's like, you know, these amazing things that our brain does, right? One after another, vision, language, et cetera. And the, and the, and the, and the pathetic state of AI. So in a way, I was as much inspired to go into AI by reading about psychology than, than, than by reading about AI. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So, um, were you, I, I read in, uh, I think it's in the like preface to Master Algorithm that you were also thinking about doing an MBA up until that point. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what, what did that, was that like an immediate just like psh, eureka moment, I have to go do this thing? Uh, and what, what do you, yeah, what do you, what do you make of that, uh, that jump? No, it wasn't, yeah, it was not, it was the opposite of a eureka moment. So yeah. as I was getting ready to graduate, I, I've always been interested in management and, and in business in general. And again, I've gone into engineering, not because I necessarily wanted to do engineering, but possibly as a path to management. And again, one of my dad's, you know, manager friends said like, oh, you know, majoring in management is a waste of time because you can learn everything you need with a one-year MBA. And I was like, great, you know, so I can major in engineering and then do a one-year MBA. And so I was starting to look at that, also starting to look at possible jobs. In parallel with all of this, I was in the band. So I, I, you know, I got into music like a lot of people at the age of 15, 16. What kind of and music did was, the band play? It was kind of like avant-garde uh, rock music. You know, this was the 80s. You know, this was the era of Joy Division and the early U2 and The Cure and Talking Heads and what whatnot. What did you play? Uh, I played keyboard. I mean, I, I eventually played many different instruments, but my main instrument was keyboards. And in some of these bands, I was also the singer. And then the last band that I was in was actually very successful. You know, we broke through, we had an album with EMI, we had TV appearances, we had shows in arenas. And, and so that wound up taking, and we were touring and recording and, you know, blah, blah. And, and, and that was actually at that point uh, taking up, you know, this was, you know, after graduating, the, you know, probably the biggest chunk of my time. While all this was going on, I was just getting more and more into AI, right? Not because I decided to, but because I couldn't help it. I just kept thinking about it. It was just like, you know, and having ideas and writing programs and pursuing different avenues, you know, just, and, and I could see where this was going, right? Like, you know, rock music is fun, 
but it's very limited as a creative arena. Right? There's only so much you can do in a four-minute pop song. Right? You can, you know, people have taken it to the limits, but still. Well, that's why you were playing the eight-minute avant-garde shit. No, well, it wasn't. It wasn't <laughs> eight minutes. And you know, and to be fair, like we sold out, right? Like that, the whole the whole thing about you know being avant-garde is that at some point you have to sell out, right? Yeah. But you, you can't start out being making cheap pop music because then nobody respects you. Right. On the other hand, if you do avant-garde music your whole life, then you'll never actually have an audience. Well, it's the so same principle as an academic. You have to do your technical stuff first, establish your expertise, then you can go, uh, you know, uh, spout whatever you want on uh, your, your your larger societal issues. And yeah, that and then then you can go off the deep end, as yeah. I did with the master algorithm. So I'm still following that plan. Yeah. 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 In uh, fact, like, you know, being in one world in many ways prepared me for the other. Because, by the way, creative activities, whether they're music or computer science research, at some level, they're all very much alike. Mm. Yeah. There's differences that come from the field, but but it truly went, I, I was saying this semi-facetiously, but actually having been in that world actually in many ways prepared me for the world of research. But, but you know, to answer your question, uh, what happened at one point is that as I was doing this, I started thinking, you know, I, I want to get a PhD in machine learning. Uh, but there was obviously a conflict between that and staying in the band. Uh, and I, I, as usual, and I think it's a generally good advice, is I tried to keep my options open. So while we were doing all this touring and whatnot, I applied to the Fulbright program and, and so on. Uh, which would make it possible for me to come and do a PhD if I so decide. And at one point I had decided that, no, this band is going somewhere and I'm just going to stick with it. By the way, I, if I was going to get a PhD in machine learning, I researched what the good places were and they were all in the US, the best ones. So, you know, I knew I would, I would have to come here. And at one point I decided, no, I'm not going to do that. And that was the point, like right before you have to take, you know, the GRE, which, you know, is these exams and, you know, the subject and various things. And then, like, I think almost the day before the exam, so I just, this was in the summer, I said, like, no, I'm not going to go. And then I thought, well, I should just take the exams, just because why not, <laughs> just in case. Uh, and, and then, sh- you know, shortly thereafter, I started to realize that that band, unfortunately, was not going to go anywhere more than it had been already, which turned out to be 100% on the money. So so I then, so so then, you know, just like, I barely, it barely didn't, it almost didn't happen, but, but I ended up deciding, yeah, to come here and, and, and do a PhD. And, and then I did. And, and like, I went, there were really only two, there were two places. There was Carnegie Mellon, there was UC Irvine. Hmm. They were the only two places in the world that have more than one or two machine learning faculty. Most places said zero. Uh, they might have AI, but it would be a few people and none of them were machine learning. Carnegie Mellon and, and UCI actually had sizable, uh, you know, machine learning groups. I got into UCI, um, and again, they both had this tradition of their CS being cl- their AI in particular being close to Cox High and 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 psychology, which I liked. Uh, so you know, it was a no-brainer. I, I got into UCI and, and and I went there, and it was like you know, perfect timing, because this was the moment when machine learning was taking off. And, you know, at UCI, between faculty and students and whatnot, there were like, I don't know, 30 people there. It was like, it was, it was, it was amazing, right? It like, I couldn't have picked a better time and place to be than, than, than at that place at that time. And I mean, like, people talk about the machine learning revolution as if it happened yesterday. 
it started in the 90s. And, you know, this is like exponentials. Like, you keep seeing it get bigger, uh, and, and you think everybody already knows about it, but then you realize that no, right? You know, you start up like, you know that there's people at, the com- at a company who know about it, and then at one point it gets to the CIO, and then it gets to the CEO, and then and then it gets to the media, and like, you know, and it's on the title, you know, and it's on the, you know, uh, covers of magazines and whatnot. So so I was very lucky, I think, with that. But I remember like one one of my fellow grad students of my advisor at one point dropped out of the program uh, because he said, there's no future in this. In machine learning, everything has been tried and it's not going in. And I was like, you're insane. We're not even beginning. But, you know, uh, to many people, that it wasn't that obvious, at least, that things were going to go the way they did. Yeah. So one one thing that I, I've, I've seen you describe your dissertation as unifying symbolic and analogic learning, um, and then, you know, later on, sort of incorporating Bayesianism, incorporating uh, connectionism, deep ne- deep networks, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so what's, I'm, I'm sort of curious about this trend, which is toward synthesis and bringing together disparate perspectives, um, which certainly not everyone would have, you know, lots of researchers are inclined to sort of dig deeper into one sort of thing. And you, you seem to be, uh, and even, you know, talking about rock music and academia, well, actually here is the, you know, uh, uh, the, the generalization between, you know, different domains of creativity. Where do you think that comes from and how does, how does that inclination towards synthesis, you know, sort of play out for you and especially during that earlier point in your career? Well, I think, that the tendency towards synthesis is almost a personality trait. Some people have it and some people don't. Uh, and, and I think there's room for both kinds of people. Uh, I personally have always been interested in on the one hand, and again, it's not, a, I mean, it becomes conscious at some point, but it's almost like an instant. Like, I try to learn as much as possible, right? When I go into a field, even when I went into music, I wasn't just listening to my favorite song. It was like, I want to know everything that's been done in pop music from the 50s, every type, and then I'll figure out what I want to do with it. But at the same time, I'm not satisfied with collecting knowledge. I want to synthesize it all into something. And, 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 my, and the thing is that like now on a, on a not non-personal level, this is how good science is made. Right? I forget who it was that said, and I, this really resonates with me, you know, when a field starts out, its textbooks are small. And I went through this in AI, right? But that first textbook was 300 pages. And then its textbooks grow large. And we're in that phase now, right? Russell Orvig is 1,200 pages, and there's bigger books even on machine learning. And then when the field is mature, the textbooks are small again. Yeah. And that's the stage that I want to be part of. I want to make the textbooks small again. Oh, yeah. And it's like, it's very hard. But it is the most satisfying because it's the part that lasts forever, right? When people think about Newton and Einstein, they forget the centuries of confusion that preceded them. And many great people, you know, the Galileos and whatnot, that worked up to that point. But ultimately, the most important contribution is the one that finally puts it all together into something very simple and very, it's not just that it's simple, it's very powerful because it's very tight. And I believe that we are going to have that in AI. And, and that's, you know, that's what my research agenda has been from PhD to now. So I've been very consistent in that regard. Maybe correct, maybe mistaken, but that's, that's what I've been doing. Yeah, love it. 
So um, what is the most inspiring intellectual environment that you've been a part of in your career? If you, I mean, I'm sure lots of different places have you know, lots of things to offer, but is there one time where you really felt like, wow, there was just this atmosphere of something magical going on? Well, I've been very lucky um, to, first of all, be part of the early machine learning days at UC Irvine. I think that was, you know, uh, I was very lucky with that. I was also very lucky to have been hired by the University of Washington Computer Science Department as a professor, because it is one of the best departments in the world. And just the quality of the people there uh, and, and of what goes on is just amazing. So, you know, if looking at my whole life, I had to pick the place that has been most important, it would be UW, because, you mm -hmm. know, I've spent uh, 20 years there. Also, uh, I, uh, I, correlation with proximity to Paul Allen, I think, helps when you're a computer scientist. Uh, that, that, seems to, uh, that seems to pay dividends. Uh, it, it's not just Paul Allen. It's that uh, um, certainly Paul Allen, you know, he has done a lot for, for us and for Seattle. But it's it's Seattle is second only to Silicon Valley in terms of being a locus. Well, maybe excluding China these days, but but in terms of being a locus of uh, progress uh, in the computer industry, there's Microsoft, there's Amazon. You know, I, I came to to UW in 1999. And one of the first talks I saw was by a guy from Amazon who was back then a very young company talking about something he called the Web Lab. And the web, the whole idea of the web lab is we're going to do 80 tests of everything. And it, the guy was a statistician and he said like, you know, at Amazon, when you have an idea, you don't just code it up and deploy it. It has to pass through this battery of tests. And, you know, people used to think that, oh, getting a, a sample of a thousand is a lot. And, you know, they have, even then they had samples of millions coming in every day. They could just do Again, this was the beginning of a whole paradigm that has now swept the world. And of course, that wouldn't, I wouldn't have seen that talk if we hadn't been neighbors of Amazon. And Microsoft Research, right? The fact that we are neighbors with Microsoft Research, Microsoft Research is, you know, 10 times bigger than us, you know, as a department. But we have a very close working relationship with them. You know, my students do internships there. You know, they, they give seminars, like sometimes even teach classes. So being part, and you know, and then there's the startup environment. Like, so being part of this whole uh, environment has been amazing. I mean, having said that, uh, you know, I, I spent a year on sabbatical at Stanford and, you know, Silicon Valley is on a different scale yet again. Uh, I was also, you know, I also spent time at Carnegie Mellon and, and MIT and all of these places, you know, I, I, I learned a lot from. Uh, if I had to name, I, I never went there, you know, I, I, I interviewed there, well, informally interviewed there. But but it stuck in my mind as like the ultimate was Bell Labs. When when I went to Bell, you know, like they, they have, you know, they actually had Bell Labs researchers going around universities looking for promising students about to graduate to try to bring them in. Uh, they really had that whole recruiting thing down. And so I went and visited Bell Labs. And I and this was already kind of like the decaying days of Bell Labs, unfortunately, right? They were about to fall apart. Uh, didn't take much longer, and you could see the writing on the wall. But I've never seen a place where there was a greater atmosphere of just, you know, brilliant research going on. And the happiest nerds you ever saw were at Bell Labs. Yeah. Right? They just had this feeling that what we're doing is important. This is the center of the world. We can do what we want. We don't have to deal with crap. 
And, you know, like nothing makes researchers happier than having other equally brilliant researchers to interact with. And Bell Labs was the place, mm -hmm. right? Unfortunately, it's all gone now. There's no Bell Labs, but, you know, there, I mean, there have been a few Bell Labs-like places in history. Uh, but, but again, I think Bell Labs probably stands on its own as being, you know, the, the supreme research organization that, that has ever existed. Um, okay, so that's places that you've drawn inspiration from at various times. How about uh, books? What are the books that have most influenced your thinking, uh, especially, you know, maybe earlier on in your career? Um, uh, and also, it doesn't have to be limited to academic books. If there is, you know, literature, uh, um, you know, poetry, memoirs, whatever it is, what, what, what's a, a handful of books that have really spoken to you uh, th through, th throughout your life? Yeah, it's hard to choose, uh, but I think one that has to be mentioned is uh, Gödel Escherbach. Hmm. Now, Gödel Escherbach, when I read it, I was already committed to AI. But I know a lot of people uh, of my generation, and, and maybe even before and after, who got into AI because of Gödel Escherbach. Yeah. That book determined their career. And, and, and I don't know if you've read it, but, but uh, the thing about Gödel Escherbach is that it's, it's a one-of-a-kind book. I mean, I've read, I don't know how many books, but I've never read a book like Gödel Escherbach. It, 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 it sets, it, at the same time, it's an incredibly deep book. The things that it talks about, you know, are, you know, really, um, you know, it's as deep as it gets. At, at, and, you know, and, and, the, and the subject, and the thing about Gödel Escherbach is that it's almost hard to say what the book is about, right? You know, Douglas Hofstadter in the preface says, you know, the only way I can summarize this book is this, this thing that it sets out my religion. The book has nothing to do with religion, but after you read the book, you know what he means, right? Like, the book at some level is about recursion, <laughs> right? Recursion in Bach's music, recursion in Nash's art, and recursion in Gödel's theorem and in logic, right? But he sees recursion everywhere. The world is organized in terms of recursion, right? So, you know, it can be dangerous to fall into something like that, but at the same time, the sheer power that he has to like organize the entire world around that. And then of course AI, right? Because a lot of this touches on AI. At the same time, the book, you know, content aside, the book is just incredibly brilliant in how it's written. It's 800 pages that fly by with these dialogues, you know, with Achilles and the tortoise, right? It's like Alice in Wonderland with, you know, with a lot more content, right? But the level of creativity, I think, is, is comparable to Alice in Wonderland. And the puns that, you know, like the humor and, you know, like the, the, the tricks that he's constantly uh, coming up with, it's, it's uh, I mean, yeah, it, I don't know. The whole graphical aspect of the book, right, is just, uh, uh, it's a really one-of-a-kind book. So, I mean, it influenced me a lot, not decisively, because I had already, you know, uh, decided to go down that path. But but I think it is it is a book that that stands out as, as having been you know very important for a whole generation of, of of computer scientists. More recently, actually, another book by 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 Douglas Hofstadter that I think I really like that book. Nobody else seems to. <laughs> but it's because uh, you know it's a book that so it's uh, surfaces and essences uh, by Douglas Hofstadter and, and Emmanuel Sander, and the subtitle is "Analogy as the Fuel and Fire of Thinking." 
Yeah. Inspired and, and it's really, many fewer AI careers than GEB did, that's for sure. None that I know of, zero. None that I, zero that I know of. Basically 100% in the GEV category, 0% in the services and yeah, but absolutely. But, yeah. but, I, but, but here's the thing, right? Is that at the end of the day, and, and you know, like it's it's just a normal book, right? Mm. It's not on the same level as Gilead Shabbat. And it's a long book and, you know, it's not written to be exciting. It's just them saying what they want. But the reason why I think that book is important is that it is one of the most insight. I mean, like people have written limitless things about AI, both, you know, on a formal, you know, technical level and in terms of more general books. And I've read, you know, a good chunk of that literature. The book, I think, is uniquely insightful about how intelligence really works. The book is almost a piece of introspection. It, 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 you know, he may be a cognitive scientist slash computer scientist, but it just reads like a good old fashioned philosophy book from the 19th century. He's observing himself and other people. But the observation, and you know, like there's a level of the book that's unsatisfying. It doesn't go below a certain level. It doesn't operationalize any of it, right? There's no algorithms that come out of it. So it's not very satisfying. But in terms of somebody having really nailed what intelligence is all about at some level, we should be all over that book. But unfortunately, the fashions in the air right now are completely not in that direction. And also, I think Hofstadter himself. Well, he's a very good writer and, you know, a brilliant person. He has been signally unsuccessful at actually pursuing a real research. You know, he's a researcher, right? Publishes papers, but that part has really not been there. And he's also, again, ironically, after inspiring all these people to go into AI, developed an antagonistic relationship with the AI community. He thinks, you know, the AI is, a lot of people think AI is off on the wrong track for their different reasons, and they may even be right, right? But the thing is that, like, I personally don't believe in this notion that, like, you're going to be the lone genius and prove everybody wrong. And then, you know, in the long term, the world would know that you're right. It just doesn't work that way, at least more than once in a million times. You, wherever you want to go, you got to bring the research community along with you. Right. Because if you don't, it won't happen. So, like, and, and also another very important thing is that, like, as much as I believe in doing the synthesis, I think in AI, there's not going to be one Newton. The problem is too big. I don't think there's going to be someone who writes down the four equations of AI. There's a lot of physicists in AI <laughs> or former physicists who, who believe they're going to write down the four equations of AI on a T-shirt, but I don't think that's going to happen. It's yeah. going to be a much larger effort. Yeah. right? And, so, and that larger effort is beyond any one person, so you have no choice but to try to you know, interact with other people because it's going to be a community. It always is, right? But I think in AI, more than in, say, physics, it's going to be a community-level effort or it's not going to succeed. Yeah. You know, I think I might be slightly more sympathetic to Hofstadter's position as an outsider in the uh, machine learning and AI community. Um, Because one thing that strikes me about AI as a field is that Despite the fact that it is in the large uh, textbook phase uh, of things, there is a lot of methodological consensus, um, particularly around deep networks. Um, and that is by far the most productive, um, useful avenue to pursue at the moment. And so one concern is that following that in the route that we're doing is optimizing towards a local maximum rather than a global maximum. 
and having a few more curmudgeons who, admittedly, I don't know of any technical work that, that Hofstadter has actually accomplished, uh, to your point, but having a few more curmudgeons who are willing to say, look, you know, screw the, you know, whatever uh, it seems to be working at the time. Let's try some 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 insane stuff. That seems to me like something that will be beneficial to AI in the long term, in hopes of finding the the, the global maximum. Oh, I completely agree with you. As an AI insider, actually, I agree with you even more than I think if I was on the outside, because I can see it from the inside. But let me actually elaborate on. I think it's more than a few curmudgeons. Even within AI most of the people are not doing deep learning today mm. right deep learning has exploded but there's a lot of people from various directions including other schools of machine learning that are very critical of deep learning and they have a right to be and i think we do need to let a thousand flowers bloom bloom and more but over but like you know like uh Hofstadter's estrangement from the ai community dates back much further than deep learning right even when symbolic ai was still dominant Already Hofstadter and, you know, and AI have gone separate ways. And, and, but the thing is that, like, you, what I feel, right, after more than 20 years in this field is that the paths that we've explored are half a dozen. They are inspired by ideas that people previously had coming from logic or philosophy or neuroscience. And again, this happens in immature fields. They borrow ideas from other fields. And now you've gotten stuck with them. And my deeper feeling, which I can't prove, but is my strong feeling, is that in the end, what we need are native AI ideas. They are not going to come. This was one of my main motivations for writing the master album. Is that like I want other people outside the field to be thinking about AI because I think they're going to have the key ideas. Because yeah. we, you know, in our daily work, we're already too stuck in like, oh, we're doing this convex optimization and that statistical, blah blah. This is all very nice, and you'll need it, you know, to have systems that work. But at the end of the day, this is not what's going to really solve the problem. And, you know, to just say something about deep learning, I think it's amazing the progress that we're making with deep learning. You mentioned the word methodology, which I think is a crucial one. The thing that has made AI successful, and the thing that I learned more than anything else at UC Irvine when I was a grad student, is a particular methodology. And that's not just deep learning, it's the machine learning methodology. The machine learning methodology is the notion that like, you can go to town, build a model that is, uh, you know, uh, have machine learning algorithms that are as crazy as you want, but you gotta do this. You gotta work with real data from day one. This was a watershed in AI. People used to do all this stuff in simulations and artificial worlds and whatnot. I mean, never led anywhere. Micro world is what they were called, right? The blocks world and whatnot. That was a comprehensive failure. And then people said, like, no, we're going to start working on real data from day one. Real data. That's the first part of the paradigm. Hmm. And then you got to do this thing of training on a random subset of the data and testing on another. Because it's not until, and it's only once things work on the test data that you believe them. This is the scientific method in a microcosm. And once we started doing that, we could do the scientific method at a thousand times the speed. This is what has fueled machine learning and, and, and then all the other fields that build on machine learning, like natural language processing and vision and whatnot. So this has been amazingly successful. And every day we see, you know, DeepMind and, you know, you know OpenAI and whatnot, seeing how much farther they can push it with more data, with, with, you know, more CPUs, GPUs, and so on. But it is a local optimum. 
right? It is very much a local autumn, and we do need to escape that local autumn because this local autumn is not enough to get to AI. Yeah. So in some ways, yes, it's fine for people to reach, you know, the peak of that optimum, but we do have to be thinking about what we're going to do that will get us to the moon instead of just a ladder to the roof. Yeah. So, so I think we need many more Hofstadters and the tragedies that we don't have more of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, your point about him being singular, uh, you know, genius, but also not believing in the lone figure thing. I think that the maybe the difference there is that science is fundamentally a collaborative effort, whereas literature, which I think is closer to what Hofstadter's contribution was, tends to be more of the sole um, uh, you know, singular effort, uh, and, and that sort of stuff. So yeah, maybe that, maybe there, maybe there still is lots of room for the different kinds of minds and, and literary minds and that sort of stuff to, uh, to hopefully, you know, that's the, the kind of thing that we're starting to incorporate larger, uh, stuff into to AI. Is, speaking of literature, is there anything you want to add, um, novel-wise? Are you, are you, like, obligated by virtue of being, uh, Portuguese to mention like Pessoa or something like that as a, as a favorite uh, uh, writer or anything like that. Do you have do you have anything you want to add on that before we? I'm not obligated, but now that you bring it up, he is one of my favorite writers. I think is you know Your one of the hometown greatest. sort of hero. Uh, but... I I feel more like I'm privileged hmm. to be a native Portuguese speaker because I can read him in the original. Hmm. Yeah. People who don't speak Portuguese, you know, of course, there's great writers in other languages that I don't have that privilege. But with Pessoa, I do have the privilege. And in particular with poetry, like, like you, you know, you, you, any translation is necessarily a different poem, hmm. right? And, and, and I think Pessoa, again, he's, he's, he's unique, right? He's like, uh, he's singular. Yeah. There have been many great poets, but Pessoa was, you know, a whole bunch of different great, you know, each one of his heteronyms alone would yeah. be one of my favorite poets. Exactly. And yet he was all of them. So. It's funny that you use the word singular to describe uh, uh, Pessoa because he was singularly unsingular in the number of different personas that he uh, he took on. So That's part of what made him singular. Yeah, right? exactly. But the other part, which again, I think this is true in both science and the, in, and, you know, and the arts, is yeah. that he foreshadowed, right? He was a modern poet 50 years before his mm. time, yeah. right? And that's what you want to be in art or sciences. You want to be ahead of your time. You want to be the one who sees farther. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's what I've always, I mean, like, I've always tried to do that with my research is to see further down, right? There's so many people that are just like working on the next little hill, right? But in the end, that's not going to make a lot of difference. You want to, you, you know, see further because that's how you have the most impact. And, you know, I, I could go through like most of the great artists that I admire and I think they were like that and scientists of course and you know Pessoa is a very good example of that hmm. yeah I mean look and you know the, the book of this quiet right is something that he wrote in what the 20s or 30s this became a bestseller in you know many different countries like 50 years later yeah because his state of mind resonates with the state of mind in people in the 80s and 90s and 2000s more than it did with the state of mind in people at the time that he was writing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you're right. I, definitely, I get the feeling that reading that book as a as an English speaker is not as satisfying as it would be in the original Portuguese. For one thing, uh, I, there was so I, I've read a couple different 
translations of it, which of course, you know, there's no definitive organization of, of how that book is, is supposed to, to be. And it just, it feels a couple too many steps removed from that, you know, original, uh, whatever that Pessoa magic was. And it's great. I mean, it's like, it's still, obviously there's, there's so much there, but I, I totally get what you mean. And I am jealous that you get to experience it, uh, in the, in the original. Cause I have a feeling that's where, uh, so much magic is. Uh, anyway, last 10 minutes, I want to ask you about mass master algorithm. Uh, when did you, when did that idea start to take shape for you? When did you be able to sort of put words to what you were conceptualizing as, as, as the, the sort of goal of, of one algorithm to, to rule them all? Well, that book happened when two different things came together. The first one was that very early on, I had this feeling that somebody needed to write a popular science book about machine learning. In, in, in the 90s, right? Because machine learning was already taking off in the 90s, right? In the mid-90s, everybody wanted to have a data mining, as it was then called, research lab and whatnot. And, and like, the sheer amount of, like, misunderstanding and not understanding of the field that was about, I was like, somebody needs to write a book like this. But it didn't seem very urgent on the one hand. And, and, and on the other hand, I didn't see how to write that book in an interesting way. You know, I'd been reading popular science books all my life, uh, and so it was natural to think of writing a popular science book about my field. But one of the golden rules of writing a popular science book is, uh, you know, do not mistake a topic for a story. And you can't write a popular science book by saying like, oh, here's a chapter about neural networks, here's a chapter about decision trees. You can do that in a textbook because you have a captive audience, right? They either study for the exam or they fail, right? But with a book like this, you got to hook people on every line or they put down the book. So I felt the need to write the book, but I didn't have an idea, right? Completely independent from this, I was working on my research and, 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 on, and on this idea of what I, at the time, called the one algorithm. Right? It was, my first title for the book was actually the one algorithm. Yeah. So when you, when you sold the book, that was the, the proposed name, the working title? No, by, no, by that time, I had changed the, 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 mm. the title to the master algorithm. Okay. Right? But, but the thing is, so I... I was pursuing this idea that you can synthesize all these machine learning paradigms into one algorithm, and, and, and there were other people, right? But this to me was just a research agenda. And then there was one morning while shaving where it occurred to me, these two things are the same. <laughs> you can write a popular science book about machine learning whose organizing theme is the quest for the master algorithm. Mm, yeah. Also, at, the, at that point, this was 2012, it, it had become, I thought, urgent to write a book like this. Yeah. Because you are now seeing, you know, machine CEOs and presidents make decisions related to machine learning while being completely wrong about what it really was. Hmm. So I was like, somebody has to write this. And then the next question is, well, why me, right? I, I'm not a writer. But then I realized that, like, you know, something that we didn't talk about is that at one point I actually studied writing. And, you know, UCI had one of the top creative writing programs. And then I came to Seattle for this famous thing called the Clarion West Writers Workshop. So... You know, by coincidence or not, I actually somewhat knew how to write. So here's something that I thought, you know, and the thing is to write a popular science book about machine learning or anything, right? You have to understand the subject. And some journalists and other people had made attempts at this, but they, they were not very good because they didn't understand the subject deep down. On the other hand, some popular science books are written by scientists and then they're unreadable. 
and they seem to be circulating, they seem to revolve around their own research, which yeah. I didn't like either. Yeah. So, so I tried to do a book that was like, and I, you know, at the end I can do as well, you know, I'd better do this because I don't actually see a lot of people who, who actually have yeah. both sides of it. And I had the idea. So at that point, I just, you know, ran with it. I was on sabbatical at MIT that year. It was very fortunate that that was my sabbatical year because I had time to write. Right. It was unfortunately that I didn't take that much advantage of being at MIT because basically I just started writing the book. But hey. Um, yeah, a couple of things stand out to me about that. One is that it, it sounds very correct when you say, oh, I needed to have the right narrative epicenter. And I think the master algorithm is such a great one because it wraps up a promise um, by saying, look, here, here is the one thing I can hold up and say, uh, I'm going to get you as close, like, this is what we're aiming for. I'm going to get you as close to that destination as we are at right now. Uh, and you can just sort of be tantalized by the rest of it. And that's, um, you know, uh, that is such a promise that I think speaks to people, like you say in, in the book, all sorts from general, uh, you know, lay individuals who are, you know, have some uh, interest in machine learning to people who are considering studying it. I think uh, that's that that was a, a very nicely played uh, move there, and I'm glad the timing did work out. The other thing that I think is funny about this is that, um, you know, you're talking about well, who's going to write this book? The great news for you is that your competition is mostly computer scientists who, uh, you know, with the exception of Douglas Hofstadter, don't have uh, historically, you know, like the most interest in, in, in writing uh, popular books. And uh, yeah, you, you, you did, it did feel like you hit it at a crucial time that was, uh, I don't know if this is just retrospective, but, you know, when we were sort of hitting the... Uh, you know, where it's about to upturn from, yes, okay, this is becoming important to like, okay, now it is this big, big concept in society. And you, you seem to really hit that inflection point with your timing. Yeah, I mean, the timing was actually very fortunate because when I decided to write the book, this was 2012, yeah. the big thing then was big data, yeah. right? And in fact, my book proposal said like, this whole big data meme will pass, but there's a bigger thing here that will last a long time. Mm. Little did I know that, you know, books take time to write, that mm. by the time the book came out, AI would be the big thing. Yeah. And it's like, I, I used to say to people joking that like, you know, if I accomplished one thing with that book would be that when the press used the term machine learning would no longer be in quotes. Yeah. <laughs> machine learning. Yeah. And, and, then, and then like the book happened to just come out at exactly the time that was needed for that. Yeah. So, so. In a way, it was fortuitous, right? But in another way, it was just a continuation of the same, you know, accelerating growth trend that I had seen before. And, you know, to your earlier point about the, the structure of the book, and when I decided to write the book, I went and reread a bunch of books that I'd read before, like, you know, Chaos is to me perhaps the best popular science book ever written, James Gleick's, uh, you know, survey of, of, of that field. And, you know, and, you know, books by Steve Pinker and so on. Also, I tried to read a bunch of negative examples, right? Like a good yeah. machine learning person, you got to learn. And there were a lot of negative examples of like computer scientists writing a popular science book that didn't work. Yeah. And I think partly it was because they didn't really take the time that they needed to do it really well. Yeah. And they also read books about how to write. And one of the key things is that like, you don't have to start from scratch. There are certain structures for popular science books. One of them is the mystery. 
a lot of science books are like, here's the mystery that we're going to be solving, right? And then another one is the quest. And, and, and you know, to me, it was immediately obvious that this book should be the quest type of book, right? Yeah. We are on a quest for something, right? It's a book about technology, right? It's actually very hard to write a book about technology. A book about biology or psychology, you know, people are interested in it by nature. A book about algorithms, right? This is a very, uh, you know, iffy proposition. Yeah. So, so like writing it as a quest just seemed like the, the the natural thing to do. And you know, I had to, you know, you know, open my cards at the beginning and say like, we're not going to come to the end of this quest in this book, but that's for you, the reader. And in fact, I mean it, right? I want people to now to be thinking, what what ideas could you have? And you know, like I've received countless emails from people saying, like, I went into computer science because I read this book, so you know that makes me happy. On the um, GEB to surfaces and essences scale of number of AI careers inspired, master algorithm, uh, master algorithm is somewhere in the middle. Well, on the logarithmic. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think that there's a really great point in there, which is you gotta read books that aren't that good. Uh, in order to really understand the nature of the books that really sing and what they do differently and to find things that you think might work or, or by people who you'd expect to, uh, you know, have a good shot at it working for and, and, and see how they fell short of that. And I think that that's, that's definitely yeah. a crucial. I mean, in, in fact, if you don't, and same thing if you're writing a novel, for example, mm-hmm. right? If you only, you know, I try to only read good novels because write you know, why read bad ones? But the problem is that is that if all you ever read are good ones, then you think it's easy. Yeah. And then you don't realize all the ways in which you're going to go wrong. Yeah. It's when you see the failed examples that you see like, okay, I got to avoid this and I got to overcome that. So, so very important. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're bumping up against our uh, time here. So I will let you go on to uh, your next Zoom meeting or whatever uh, uh, computer staring activity you have uh, lined up next. So, Pedro, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun.